two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we finished, uh, we finished this second round called We Camp, which is a generosity initiative we started over a year ago at our church. Uh, when we started that generosity initiative, it was because of the growth that you see with these families and new space, and we'd been here for five years, so we started this process of getting everybody on board at a heart level at 514 Church, which meant that we needed everyone to buy in financially to what we were doing if we were going to move out and either renovate a space or, in fact, buy ground and build, build land, build a building, which we, we have to do, which we found that we want to do, we need to do. We started this generosity initiative, and at the time, our church had under 100 regular givers. We had under 100 people at the time who were committed financially to give regularly. So we started this journey, and after the first year and round of commitments, our church went from under 100 regular givers to over 300 regular givers. And that church said, you know what, we're gonna commit to this, uh, to this thing, and they committed for a two-year period $6.2 million, which is triple the annual budget. It's from $1 million to $3 million two times after two years. Unbelievable, unbelievable. So this time last year, we announced to the church, I stood up here, that we have committed uh, $6.2 million that will come in over a two-year period. Well, then we did it again this past year, and uh, we had um, an incredible amount of new commitments, over 100 new commitments. So now we're over 400 people who have committed to 514 Church financially to give regularly. It's unbelievable. It's, it's just incredible. And so what we did is, as we went through this process and we shared with you our goals and dreams, and we put a huge project in front of you guys in terms of a building, an $11 million building, and $2 million of that was for ground, because we're going to buy prime real estate, and we were already able to buy the ground because of your giving. But it was such a huge project that what I put in front of you guys, there was a book we handed out last year when we went through this series, We Can't, and in that it had a goal of two years to be committed and given of $9 million. Nine million, and that was a huge, big goal, which meant 4.5 million a year for the next two years. Again, that's up from a million. Huge goal because it's a huge project. So we called this thing We Can't because of how difficult it would be, and only God could somehow rally this church together and provide what we needed and step in and fill in the gap. And so um, what I wanna do is I'm gonna update you today on our goal, on where our commitments are, and how much we've received and what it's gonna to take to get us to break ground and start building the building. So that's what I'm gonna to do today. Now we're gonna do this for you guys uh, once a month. You're gonna hear about this. We're gonna put this in front of you. How much have we received? How much has been committed? How close are we to our goal? We're gonna have some other people start to do that, but we are gonna make sure that this is in front of you because we haven't quite got there yet, but the results are really exciting. What we have found is that $9 million goal is a million dollars higher than what we actually need to break ground. Uh, we still want to have 4.5 committed, uh, another 4.5 or 9 to come in and to have been committed over two years. That would be great. That'd be like awesome. But to break ground, we actually need a million dollars or $8 million. So we need $8 million to come in, to be committed, and to be given to the church before we can start. We, we, we called this a two-year commitment, but if it takes longer than that, that number doesn't change. Right, that's the number that we need. And so, after last year, and combined with over 100 new gifts this year, 
we have a new level of commitments and where they stand today, this is where our commitments are today. All of our commitments have not been made. We anticipate more. We also know that there are some people that have moved away from the church, and so we've lost some numbers. And so where we are, we want to put in front of you guys a conservative number that's still in flux, moving, that takes last commitments of the 300 people and an additional 100 people, and here's where we are today. We have 6.5 committed. Now you look at that and you go, okay, 6.5, we only had 300,000. It's actually more than that, but we're trying to be conservative, and there's still some things that are changing, and people's commitments are changing. In this number, it's incredible. It's 100 new commitments, and I'd have to say that over 100 of the original commitments were increased. And so what this means is that we're a million and a half dollars away from the amount that we need to be committed and given before we can start. And so it's, it's, it's incredible, it's wonderful. I still want to start the building process in January of 2018. I want to, and I believe that in the next year, God is gonna have to do something with this 1.5 million. I mean, who knows what's gonna happen? We know that there's people that are here that could stroke a check for 1.5. Our, our uh, consultants that led us through this process uh, said that you're gonna need one person to give a million and another person to give two million and maybe four people to come together and give at least three million in order for you to reach your goal. So if you're here today, just meet me right up here. I'll be right, I'll be right here. Um, but we don't know how God is gonna fill in this gap. We just, we, all we know is that when we think about where we started and where we are and what's happened because we've already been able to buy the land, it's unbelievable. So we own eight acres on Hamilton Road in 161. It's unbelievable what God has done. Now, I'm gonna show you the next number here, and this number represents how much of the total that's been committed has been received today, 2.4 million has been received. So at the end of this year, we hope to have that. Um, honestly, our December is our biggest month, as you can imagine, year in giving. Last year, $500,000 was given during the month of December because of this. So we anticipate that we will be around that $3 million uh, mark one year through this giving. And we need everyone to still give and fulfill their commitments. And hopefully if we go through the next year and everyone fulfills their commitments, we'll be at that 6.5. That's if nothing else happens but we need to have a substantial amount of money in the bank before we can break ground, and that's what that $8 million number represents. So we need $8 million committed, and then it needs to actually be received before we can break ground. So how is God going to fill in that gap with 1.5 million? We don't know, and to be honest, like, I don't really care how he does it. It's so cool, I can't wait to see how he does this. I don't know what he's gonna do, and uh, it's fun to watch. It's been amazing to see. You guys have been incredible. The new commitments, the, the 100 more commitments, 400 plus people that have made commitments and are giving regularly to 514 Church. That's giving units. That represents families, right? That could be 800 minimum different people that are giving, husband, wife. I mean, that's incredible. That is incredible. We were on the phone this week with our consultant that said, the numbers that you guys are experiencing, they do this nationwide, they've done it over, like over 300 times, this guy that we're working with that, that has led us to this, he said, the, the generosity that your church is showing is really very rare. And, and, and look, some of you might be going, well, you know, we're like in a suburb, really wealthy suburb. Our biggest commitment 
is over 300,000, just over 300,000. The majority of these commitments of those 400 people, I think our average is $15,000 for two years in a family saying, we're gonna get $15,000 over the next two years. I mean, we are talking 400 people that are just committed and giving regularly. That's you guys. Wow, I'm, I'm impressed with you. I'm impressed with the giving that you guys have shown, with your faithfulness to God, with, with tithing, with following my leadership. Absolutely incredible. So we're gonna be updating you guys. Yes, let's do a clap. I think that's right. Unbelievable. Um, unbelievable what God is doing right here in these numbers. Right here in these, in these numbers. Um, uh, my kids, we, uh, we play this game that every parent and kid plays, right? Uh, hide and go seek with your kids. And we, uh, what happens is, is I've gotten to the point where I get a little mean about playing this game with my kids because like I hide so well that like they can't find me and they start crying. And it's, what's weird about that is I kind of like it. I'm like, oh yeah, like I'm pushing it. Count's like, I can't find daddy. And it's like, dude, yes, he's gonna get tired and fall asleep sooner. Like, that's like what I'm thinking. But what we do is, uh, you know, when they can't find me, they're like walking around and they say this. They say, whistle daddy, whistle daddy, where are you? And so I, we have this whistle, right? In our, and then when they hear that, they go, oh. Ready goes, oh. And then they come up, and when they get on my level and they can't find me, whistle, daddy, whistle, daddy. And what whistle, daddy means is give us a hint. Like, give us something. Like, give us a signal. Will you tell us where you are? Daddy, where are you? We need some help. We need some clarity. And I feel uh, a certain level of tension that after this election week, that our church, that people need some clarity. I mean, don't you kind of wonder sometimes, and especially this has been one of the most polarizing uh, weeks I can remember, 36 years old in my life, polarizing in terms of a nation. Don't you kind of want like, okay, God, like there are people on both sides of this thing in terms of the, the political par parties. There are people that are like, they love God, they're honoring God, they know you, they, and they are, could not be more different in their opinions on this. And it's kind of like, I, I get to the place and I hear me here today like, God, whistle. Like, what are you saying in all of this? Like, what do you have to say? Not just like, I know what the scriptures say, but people read the scriptures and they interpret it completely differently depending on what uh, paradigm they're coming from. So God, like, can we get a little like clarity from you? Like, our country has this foundation of, of you know, 200, 300 years of saying they believe in this Christian ethic and believing in Jesus, and, and really that didn't get fleshed out very honestly or very accurately in terms of following Jesus because, I mean, slavery is one of the, you know, the black eyes on humanity. So to say that you love Jesus and then you have hundreds of years of slavery, it doesn't really add up, but we kind of believe that we have these Christian principles, and then we have this nation and then from that has grown all these different beliefs about what that is. Now, we all agree that, you know, we're supposed to be kind, supposed to be patient, supposed to love one another. Like, those are like the ethics that kind of transcend whether or not you believe in Jesus. And different religions teach those things. So, of course, like the ethics of how we should treat one another, we all agree on that. But what is right, what is wrong, and the Bible has all these different pieces that make it confusing, and so I feel today, like, I feel pressure. Like, I don't really want to talk about 
you know, the election, but I feel like, God, like, can you give us like a little bit of like, what are we supposed to do? Like, how are we supposed to respond? Like, how are we supposed to be in the midst of all this? And so it's like, literally, we need to talk about, I mean, the elephant in the room. I'll let you go with that. We need to talk about the elephant in the room. I mean, he, he's in the room. So we need to talk about it. And, and when, you, when you start to look at the disparity, right, if you just look at the parties, split them down the middle, you look at the disparity of what they believe faith looks like, what they believe right and wrong looks like. It, it just, it's, it's amazing how they can have the, the, this belief in, in, in God and, and also those that believe in Jesus and yet have such polarizing opinions about the way things should happen and the way that the system should work. It's, it's, fan, it, it's fascinating. And so my question today is like, okay, in this state of things, how do we grow the church? Like, how do we continue to grow the church? Because basically the church is looked at through the way that the people act and the people are acting so differently, but they're connecting to the same centerpiece of who God is and it's like, wait a minute, like, how do we connect with culture and actually see people have a relationship with God in a climate where if we stand on one side, we're, we're bigots, and if we stand on another side, we truly love God? How do we grow the church in the midst of all that? And in the midst of all of that, how do we overcome evil? Because the, the crazy thing is there's just so much evil out there. There's so many problems, there's so much hatred on both sides, the way that people are acting. So we need people to like, join the church, have a relationship with God, and get, get saved and, 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 and have their life transformed. But you know, we need to understand how we're going to overcome all the evil in the world. And so what I want to talk about for a couple minutes is a conversation that Jesus had 2,000 years ago with some men who he was influencing to go and do these two things, to grow the church in, in a polytheistic climate that they were moving into with the Greeks, multiple gods. Israel was this nation essentially on an island that worshiped one God, and Jesus came and is God, and then said, you're going to go and lead these people to have a relationship with God. And 2,000 years later, we have this nation that has the ethics of Christianity, but is divided about the way that this thing looks, feels, and what we believe. So wh where do we go today? How do we do this? And Jesus has a conversation in Matthew with his, uh, with his followers. And it, it's, it's fascinating. I believe that what he talks about here is, is, is what we all need to hear today. We need to be reminded, we need to be taken back on what God is doing and how he does what he does and see how what he said about how to influence change, bring people together, grow the church, overcome evil is exactly the same thing that we need to hear today. When, when he's having this conversation with his disciples, he's on a journey, they're walking to the north uh, the northwest region of Israel called Caesarea Philippi. And it wasn't always called Caesarea Philippi. That was the new name that was given to this region because the Romans came in. It was named after Caesar. So it was like they contracted and put the names to, two names together. Philippi, Caesar, Caesarea, Philippi. And they're on this journey and Jesus starts a dialogue with them about what is most important. 
and what people think and what people are perceiving in terms of Jesus' life on earth. And he is becoming a polarizing figure that people are, have different opinions about, they have different ideas about, they're hearing different things. And so Jesus takes some time to go, let's bring some clarity to who I am and how this whole thing should play out. And he has this conversation with his leaders. Now, before, before I go to this, I, wanna, I just want to earmark this, this talk today. I did a version of this talk in front of... Uh, our small group leaders a couple months ago. Not this exact same talk, but a version of this talk. Uh, it was called Whistle Daddy. God, give us something, God. Where are you in the midst of this? Because with the social issues and with leadership in our church, we have people that are coming in a church like 514 that are coming from all different paradigms, all different backgrounds. And so I want to give our leaders the ability to navigate people that have different worldviews, different ideas, different opinions, different ways of life, and say, where do we go from here? Because all the election has done has just personified and magnified what anyone who is trying to lead people to Christ uh, are already experiencing. It's all, all it's done. It's just made people more vocal and more verbal. And so... So what I, what I want to do today is, in a sense, kind of wrap my arms around you, the high school kids, middle school kids, the, the parents in the room, the business owners, and say this, uh, if you will take it, if you will, in a manner of speaking, that you are leaders, in a sense that you are influencers, in a sense that when you post something, people read it, in a sense that your conversations affect someone. You may only be leading one but you can't tell me that a mother of one who's raising one is not a leader. She's leading one. Everyone is leading someone, whether it's one or five or 50 or 500. You're leading someone. You're influencing someone. And so what we need to do is in a, in a climate like we're in right now, social issues, political uh, commentary, everything that has happened, we all need to step back and go, how do we lead? How do we influence? How do we affect this? How do we grow the church? How do we overcome evil? Don't we all want to do that? Don't we all want to grow the church? Don't we all want to overcome evil? And if you're out there and you're going, I don't want to do that yet because I don't prescribe to believe in Jesus or whatever, then you can listen in on this and go, maybe this is a conversation you need to have had with you by someone who's trying to influence you. Nonetheless, Jesus He's a master influencer, master leader, and he's in a climate that's very uh, similar to ours, where there's lots of polarizing ideas, and Jesus wades into those territories in a masterful way, and he does it in Matthew 16. So when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and I'm going to highlight the parts in, in red or this light pink that we're going to look at together. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, one of the things you have to get from this, he's with his disciples. Jesus had lots of disciples. The word disciple means follower. He had lots of disciples. He had times we, there were groups of people, sometimes a thousand, sometimes 500 people, more than that, that were called the disciples because they were followers of Jesus. But then there was a group of 12 12 men who were his closest followers. He's with these 12, and he is focused on these 12. 
Jesus Christ has already done amazing miracles. He's already fed 5,000 people. He's already healed people. He's already done just miraculous things. He's already communicated that he is God, that he is the savior of the world. And Jesus Christ, he who spoke and galaxies and stars were hung in the sky, that of which most of us will never even see, was walking with 12 men. And he does this. He asks a question. He asks a really important question. In fact, this question may be the most important question that is ever asked or that you will ever ask. Jesus is already with these men for a while. They already have decided to follow him. He wants to know who people say he is. Do you understand that knowing who Jesus is, believing who he is or not believing who he is, is in fact one of the most important questions that will ever be asked. You as a leader have to understand that the answer to who the Son of Man is, to who Jesus Christ is, is polarizing, life-changing, and everything. And one of the things that Jesus does that's so amazing here is he understands by the question that's being asked that not everybody thinks the same thing about Jesus. One of the things I'm constantly trying to lead our team to and lead our church to, I'm doing doing that right now, not everybody believes what I believe about Jesus. No, no, no. We make the assumption at 514 Church that many of you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We make the assumption that many of you don't believe that the Scriptures are the inspired word of God infallible, which is what I believe. But if I said you have to believe what I believe in order to sit in this room, half of you might not even be here. So I'm okay that you don't believe what I believe. It's fine, of course you don't, of course you don't. Now. The thing about not believing that is that the implications of believing that are intense. And that's why when people's lives maybe don't reflect what Jesus taught, I'm like, well, I mean, obviously they don't believe it. They might say they do, but they probably don't. And don't we need to have people around us who don't necessarily believe what we believe? Jesus starts with this ever important question. C.S. Lewis talks about the answer to this question, who's a great author, he, a great thinker, theologian, you can read about him. He um, actually died the same day that John F. Kennedy got shot. It's amazing, it's a weird, weird kind of overlay, but he, he was such a voice for Christianity, an artful voice, and one of the things that he articulated better than anybody else is this, that on the issue of who the Son of Man is, who Jesus is, you can either be all for it or all against it. If it's true, you can't be in the middle. You cannot take it somewhat seriously. And so Jesus knows that the answer to this question is the beginning of answers to lots of other questions. You know, a lot of people around you don't think that Jesus is God. That's again, we have this foundation and people have grown up and the ethics have kind of seeped through the soil and we agree on the ethics, but we don't necessarily agree on the ethics provider. We agree on the morality, but we don't believe in a God of morality. 
And so we cannot assume that everybody has the same answer to this question. It's a brilliant thing to do. Great leaders ask important questions. Important questions. One of the things I I believe that we all need to do is instead of making declarations, instead of reposting someone's blog, is to listen. I've heard it said before that if you don't listen to the people around you, eventually you'll be surrounded by people with nothing to say. You know what that means? Is that if you are constantly spouting off what you think, telling everybody what you think, that you have it all right, that eventually you're gonna be only surrounded by people that believe what you believe, think what you think, and you're never actually gonna be challenged in what you think. And you're never gonna grow. And I think that that, that's that's one commentary on how to respond to this. How about be a great listener and a great question asker before a declarer? Maybe the people that follow you don't think what you think. So are you going to hold people that don't follow you or that follow you to an opinion that you have that's based upon a belief that is so rooted that how in the world would you hold someone to that? How would you hold someone to act in such a way that they believe the Son of God is Jesus if they don't? I just assume, of course, of course they don't. Come in here, let's wrestle with that. Jesus starts as a master leader with a very important question. Then they answer, look at this. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Basically, there's a lot of talk about who Jesus is. There's a lot of different opinions of other people who are not in the close followers of Jesus who don't agree with who Jesus has said he is. Who are people saying that I am? Well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist at the time had already been dead. He died. And he, uh, he is uh, believed by some people to be the spirit that was in John the Baptist, and he died. Now the spirit came to Jesus. Some people believe, Jesus, that you're like kind of bouncing around and kind of going into certain people to be a leader. Okay, that's interesting. Some people think you're a, a prophet, that you're just here, you're like Elijah, the spirit of Elijah, the story of Elijah is that he went up into heaven without actually physically dying. So some people are believing, oh, okay, maybe that was Elijah coming back, spirit of Elijah. People say all kinds of things, Jesus. People say that you're one of the prophets, Jeremiah, you're a different prophet. People say lots of different things. And Jesus brilliantly, as he hears this, he moves to the next question. And two things about this next question. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? The first thing is, is that Jesus, if, if this was you or me, and, and we were asked about something that couldn't be more wrong about our person, like what, what do people say about me? Well, people say you're this, people say you're that. Usually when people's opinions don't match who you really are, typically what you see is someone becomes extremely defensive. Jesus doesn't defend himself. The disciples say, oh, you're like this, and you're like that, and you're like Elijah, and you're like John the Baptist, and Jesus doesn't go, no, I'm not. I am not. He doesn't like get on Facebook and put a meme out. I am not John the Baptist. He doesn't defend himself. You know, this is a huge principle in leadership, not defending yourself. What do you have to defend? Someone who defends himself has something to defend, and usually the thing that they think that they have to defend is the thing they just don't want everyone to know, so they just take out a straw man and beat it up. I've been to counseling. This is what defensiveness comes from, an undealt with issue. It's a lack of confidence. 
It's a lack of confidence. Influencers don't defend themselves. Jesus Christ had more to defend than anyone else. He was God in the flesh. He was absolutely true. He created the beings he was talking to, and they were questioning whether or not he was who he says he was. Wow. He could have defended himself, but he doesn't. He, he, he probably went through some version of, of course they don't believe I'm me. They don't believe in God. Of course they don't. I'm not going to defend that. He moves to the more important thing. All of those people out there, they say certain things they don't know, but then he moves it in. He doesn't only just move away from defensiveness. He asks a more specific question to them. Who do you guys say that I am? Who do you say that I am? In this moment, what Jesus shows us in terms of influencers, in terms of leadership, is that we are not gonna be able to, just by a post, by what everyone else believes, change a bunch of opinions. But you're gonna be able to influence a few. He focuses on his few. He focuses on his 12. He asks a really big, important question. He hears what other people think, and then he goes, yeah, yeah, whatever they think. What do you think? I wanna know what you guys are thinking. Doesn't defend himself. Asks some more important question. Are you seeing this pattern of how Jesus influenced? I want to know what's going on with you. You're an influencer. Are you defending yourself? Do you feel like, are you like reposting? Are you looking for some blogger to like put together some amazing post that represents what you think and you can shove that out into the void so everyone can read it and agree with what you think 95% because you didn't write it? Or how about just focusing on, if you're a small group leader, how about if you're here today and you're, you're just visiting for the first time, maybe there's someone that's like in your life that you can truly affect. How are you going about doing that? Because Jesus focused on a few, and from a few, a lot of people's lives changed. That's what we teach our leaders. Focus on your few. Focus on your family. Who are you influencing? This is what Jesus understood better than anyone. Then Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. When, when Peter said that, he made a statement that represented a breadth and depth of knowledge that was supernatural, supernatural. It was a moment of him articulating the idea of Messiah meant that you are the answer to a promise. You gotta understand this. The nation of Israel was promised a Messiah he would be the king of kings. He was called the anointed one. The word Messiah actually means king of, or it means anointed one. So he is saying, you are the answer to the promise of salvation for the people of Israel. You are the promised Messiah. And in the same breath, he says, the son of the living God, which means the special one of God, which is a way of saying you are God. You are the anointed one. You are the answer to a promise. You are God with us. 
Now, when Jesus is having this conversation after he asks uh, uh, these two questions and he funnels it down from who do people say to who do you say, and then Peter gives this supernatural answer. This answer to say that Jesus is God, Jesus stops traffic for it. Stop. Whoa, Pete, what did you just say? I've talked about this before. What did you just say? He stops, he gets everyone around, and he puts his hands on Peter's shoulders, and he goes, what you just said is everything. And he says this, Jesus replied after Peter said that, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. He says, this answer has not been revealed to you because you necessarily heard it from me. It hasn't been revealed to you because I am God in the flesh and that has brought you here. He says, I want you to understand that you believing that that I am the son of the living God, that I am the Messiah is a supernatural miracle. A miracle. He goes on, he says, flesh and blood didn't tell you this. In this moment, what, what Jesus kind of does is he says, I became flesh to bring God to you. The main purpose of Jesus' life on earth was not to put political problems on his shoulders. It wasn't to bring clarity to how we should lead. The main reason that Jesus came to earth was to die for our sins. That was his mission. And so people understanding him as the Lamb of God was constantly in flux. What was he there to do? But to understand at a heart level that Jesus was God, to place your faith in Jesus that he is God, Jesus steps away as a brilliant leader and says, that was revealed to you by my Father. Not even me. In a sense, the, the leader, the, the king of kings, gives the credit away. It's a great commentary on what leaders do. Leaders, they ask great questions. They sit with people and influence them. They make them wrestle with stuff. And then when they, the light goes on, great leaders never take the credit. They just go, that's awesome that you figured that out because it's not their credit. Jesus, in this moment, he knows that the word of God, it gets, it gets spoken about. He knows that the message of Jesus gets talked about. He knows that it gets revealed through preaching, through what Jesus did, through the miracles that he did. But he knows that people will not put their faith in Jesus unless a supernatural act from those behaviors, from preaching, from hearing, from witnessing something, unless the spirit of the living God moves in, zooms in on the soul of a man or woman and makes them supernaturally come alive. You didn't get this revealed to you by flesh and blood. God did something big in your heart, Peter. God did something big in your mind, Peter. God did what only he can do. He saves. He brings people to life. How are we gonna, how are we gonna grow the church? How are we gonna grow the church? We have to see that God as we ask questions, continues to reveal to people through what we do, how we live our lives, who we are, that 
Jesus is God and that he will change their lives forever. When somebody gives their life to Christ, it's supernatural, man. When you students are up here and you're in the baptismal tank and you say things like, I just want everyone to know that I love Jesus. We don't believe that Bryce, the student director, did that and he told you something and then the lights came on. We believe that through the movement of speaking and being faithful to a truth that the Holy Spirit of God did something on a spiritual realm that we could never do. Move into people's lives and see them transformed. Oh, well, how many of us are just trying to manipulate people? Think what I think. Say what I say. Be who I want you to be. Agree with me. I don't need anyone to agree with me. In fact, we need to get over it. 2,000 years ago, no one agreed with them. For 300 years, a bunch of people died so that people would know God. We get upset if someone disagrees with us on an issue. They don't know Jesus, and if they do, they're still growing and changing and living in a bodily form. Guys, we have to watch, we have to pray, we have to see that God changes people's lives. We have to believe that the spirit of the living God is powerful, and that when people turn to God, it's because the Father in heaven did something supernatural through the casting of the seed of the kingdom of God that one of those seeds takes root that it grows up and that it blossoms oh you didn't get this by just what you heard the spirit of the living God moved into your life Peter and changed you now I know there are some of you who are in here today who when you talk about your relationship with Jesus that's you that's you you're going, I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know how, I heard a message, Joel talked, I watched a YouTube video, I, I read, I did, I did, it, and then I believe in Jesus. And you want to follow Jesus. You just want to follow him, you just want to love him, you just believe he's the son of God. You say things like, he's the son of the living God, and you go, what? I don't know how I believe that, but I do. Something supernatural. And then he goes on, and Jesus says this, he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and in that, in that text, that's, that's the small rock. It means, it means a little stone. That's what it says in the Greek. You are just a little stone. Just a little stone, just a pebble. That's what he says. You're just a pebble, Peter. And he says, but on this rock, and when the language comes up, it's pointing back to the confession of Jesus as God. On the rock of the confession of Jesus being God, I will build my church. I will build my church. The word church here is the same word that is used for the gathering of the people of Israel all throughout the text. The church came together, the ecclesia, the gathering of people. And what Jesus does is in this moment, he says, I am going to, moving forward, be the promise to the people of Messiah, and then now I'm going to gather more people, Gentiles, people who are not a part of the special group of the Jews of the people of God, and we're going to say to anyone, anyone, it's not what you're born into, into the family that you're born into that makes you Jewish and into the ecclesia. Now, it's when the spirit of the living God grants you this gift as you respond to the message of Jesus Christ. You call yourself a Christian. You are now grafted in to the community of followers, of those that acknowledge that Jesus is God through a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. 
Wow. He calls it this church, this gathering. You and me are a part of that gathering because of the same thing that happened to Peter, because of the Holy Spirit of God, because of heaven reaching down and touching our souls. When Peter later goes on and he writes letters to churches, and he says to people that have had the supernatural movement of God work in their life, he writes in a letter to them in a book called Peter, he says, you are the living stones. You are the living stones. You are the rocks. You are the living stones. He's not talking about a building. He's using imagery. I will build my church like a building gets built, but not with stones, not with walls, stones, and brick, with living stones. People. Those stones become those stones, able to build the gathering of the local church because of the movement of the Holy Spirit. That's it. As followers, it is our job to see where people are, do they believe? And to bring them to this place of becoming living stones. And then he says this, this declaration, this declaration that Jesus is God, which is a supernatural act. He says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now just, some of us think that if people agree with us on social issues, that that's how we're gonna change the world. Some people think that like if they interpret you know, their part of the Bible differently or your, your political party, if you're on this side or that side, that that right there is gonna be what changes people. That that right there is gonna be actually what expedites or, or, or uh, uh, defenestrates evil. That if I kind of understand something about, about, about a political view or a, a part of the Bible, that's gonna get evil out. Maybe a nuanced position some, some intricacy that is difficult to articulate, but you kind of move all the pieces together and build an equation for what is good and what is bad, and this is why we shouldn't do X. And that will overcome evil. Some people believe that a political party, one side of the political party, will get rid of evil. Some people believe that one specific leader will get rid of evil. And some people believe that another leader is the epitome of evil. Jesus says that the confession that Jesus is God is the power to overcome evil. That's how we overcome evil. Do you know the picture that Jesus gives here? Later on, the disciples uh, thought about what Jesus said and, and, and they, their minds were blown after the resurrection because this is what this means. The gates of Hades will not overcome this. The picture is, is that the gates of hell, the jail cell of hell will not hold the love of God down. When Jesus was on the cross, if you remember, if you don't remember, there's a moment where he's on the cross and it's one of the most questioned parts of the cross. It's when Jesus looks up and says, my father, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in that moment, what happened is Jesus died. You understand that the death between Jesus and God actually happened before he gave up his breath? Remember, he says it is finished before he died. What it meant is that while he was on the cross, he was separated from God, spiritually. Spiritually separated from God. 
And the picture of that is that when he's spiritually separated from God, he kind of goes into this place that the scriptures outline as a place called Hades, a place for death. It's the place that the Bible teaches that you and I are supposed to go because of our sin. Jesus, on the cross, goes to that place. He carries the payment of our sin on the cross by going to a place we're not supposed to go. And here's the picture of Jesus, the cross, and Hades. Oh yeah, get ready. I'm ready. Are you ready? It's coming. Who's ready? Here we go. When Jesus is in Hades, the devil closes the door and thinks, we got him. No love, no salvation, no goodness. He's trapped. And the power of the living God moves in him and he explodes through the gates, bursts out of the grave and into our lives. Jesus overcame the grave. The grave represents hate. The grave represents evil. The overcoming of what fueled Jesus from being to being able to blast through these locked gates was, I'm God. I am the living God. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God and nothing's gonna hold me back. That's how he came to life. Oh, 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 you can put me in a grave, but my name is life, so it doesn't matter. Oh, 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 you can put me in a grave, but I am the way, so I'm going to find a way out. Oh, 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 you can put me in a grave, but I am the life, so I'm going to bring life to everybody on earth from a place of death, the way, the truth. The life, nothing's going to hold back Jesus. And that's what's going to change everybody around us. Do you know that's true? You know what this means? The foundational truth is still and always has been the most powerful. Jesus is God. Before you start to influence people, before you start to say your opinion, you need to make sure you know where they are. And so the number one question I would be asking that I would be thinking as you're influencing, as you're connecting, is what do you believe? What do you believe about God, about the scriptures, about the Holy Spirit? What do you believe? When someone professes that Jesus is Lord, something supernatural has happened. And that's what God says, overcomes evil and changes the church changes the world. Whistle, Daddy. God, give us something. Let's pray. Father, we just sometimes feel like we're lost and we lost our way um, and we need some clarity. And God, help us not to lose sight. God, I pray that the movement of God would move in this room, that the Holy Spirit of God would reach into people's souls right now. They would accept Jesus Christ. This, this totally different thing, this totally new thing, this, this, this life that they haven't experienced. Father, please, please, please do what only you can do. Do it through us. Do it through your word. Help us to understand how change happens 
that it's not through flesh and blood, but through a revelation from the Father in heaven. God, give us a revelation, every single one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.